Please pray with me. Our souls wait for you, Lord. You are our help and our shield. Indeed, our hearts rejoice in you. For in your holy name we put our trust. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us as we have put our trust in you. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to begin with a warning. Maybe that's not the best beginning <laughs> to a sermon, but I'm going to begin with a warning anyway. I want you to picture the scene of Jesus speaking with his disciples that we find in our passage in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Jesus is speaking with his disciples, but he has just addressed the crowd. And so we have a picture of the crowd on the outside looking in, having Jesus just spoke to them, uh, spoken to them about covetousness in the parable of the rich fool. And then we have the crowd looking in as Jesus then turns to his disciples to speak directly to them. So here's my warning. If you today feel like you are on the outside looking in, that you're a part of the crowd, and you don't quite understand exactly who Jesus says he is or who people say that he is, then this passage in Luke could be difficult for you to understand because what Jesus is going to lay out is absolutely countercultural to the wisdom of the world. And we'll see how that is as we go through this passage. But just be warned in the beginning that this might not make sense. See, Jesus, by this point in Luke's gospel, he set his eyes to Jerusalem. He knows what is to come for him. He knows that the cross waits for him. And yet he walks diligently to that end. And at times he, he stops and he speaks and he addresses the crowd and he addresses his disciples. But in the back of his mind and in the back of our minds as we read through the Gospel of Luke, we know that he is moving ever closer to his fate on the cross. Now, as I said, the first audience that Jesus addresses in chapter 12, beginning at verse 13, which was the subject of our sermon last week and our reading from Luke last week, it's the parable of the rich fool. And speaking to the crowd in verse 15, Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, notice this exact same message is given to the disciples in our passage. So the message is the same, but the application for the two groups is different. For the first group, for the onlookers, for the crowd, the point of the parable is to know that there is more to life than personal provision. That there is more to life than the physical world which we inhabit, that we are actual spiritual and physical beings and that we should be concerned with spiritual things with our eyes fixed to God. Verse 21 says that we are to let me see. Verse 21 says, so is this the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God? Rich towards God is the application for the onlookers. Now for the disciples, we have in verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. It's the same message about personal provision, and yet the application is different. 
he gives two detailed commands about what it means to be a follower of him, to know God and to follow him. So, friends, if you belong in that inner circle, if you know who God is, if you know who Jesus says he is, and you believe in who Jesus says he is, there's a warning for you as well. That warning comes at the end of our passage. And that warning is in verse 48. Jesus says, Everyone to him much was given, of him much will be required. It's important that we understand what it means to walk and to live as Christians in this world because the stakes have been raised for us. Somebody very smart in a recent newsletter article, his first, actually wrote these words, what we do matters. That person very smart was me, and I stole it from somebody else. (laughs) But it's important to know, what we do matters. If you want to open your Bibles, we are in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to break down this passage. It's connected from verse 22 on, and so we're going to sort of look at all of it together. The reading is also in your bulletin handout, if you want to look on there. Jesus, in giving these two countercultural commands to his disciples and speaking directly to them, what he's doing is he's creating a lens. He's creating a lens for them to see the world and a lens through which they can see themselves. Modern lingo, we call this a worldview. He's creating a worldview for them and a way of understanding who they are and how they are to operate in the world. And so we see him doing this in verse 24. Jesus writes, Of how much more value are you than the birds? What he's saying is that God provides for all of his creation. He is not only creator, but he is also sustainer. And if he's going to provide for the lowly birds, of course, of course he's going to provide for you, for you, the image bearers of God. So this is the perspective that Jesus wants his disciples to maintain in this world. He says that God sustains our life. That's not up to us. That's up to him. So we can be freed from the anxiety that comes from managing our personal provision, making sure that we have food and water and clothing. He says, let God be God. Let him sustain. We see in verse 32 why that is. Verse 32 says, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the perspective that we as disciples are to maintain. Jesus says that we don't have to worry about provision for ourselves because God himself delights in providing for us. It is his desire to sustain us. He is our creator and he is our sustainer. And so together we see this first countercultural command that Jesus has for his disciples. Do not worry about providing for your own basic needs. Let me do that. You can imagine how foolish that sounds to the world, to those who don't know who Christ is. You can imagine how foolish it sounds to say, I don't need to provide food for myself or for my family, that I can give it all away because I know that God will provide for me as he provides 
for the ravens and as he provides for the lilies in the field. Now, what Jesus is not doing is denying that the physical world exists, denying that we exist within it, denying that we have needs. This is not a Mary Poppins moment. Jesus is not saying when you become a Christian, then magic occurs and food is provided and houses are cleaned and needs are erased. What he's saying instead is that we are to operate not out of a spirit of poverty, but out of a spirit of abundance. Let me explain what those two things mean. See, it's a spirit of poverty that says that I have needs, but because somebody else has more needs, I'm going to give to them. It's a spirit of poverty that says that I'm going to give to the needy because it's the right thing to do. See, the implication here is that you still have that need, but you are obligated to give it away to the one who is more needy. Now compare that to a spirit of abundance. A spirit of abundance says, I'm going to give to the needy because they need it, and I don't. See, the implication here is that I understand who God is. I understand that he is creator. I understand that he is sustainer. I understand that he will provide for me. What's interesting is as we give through a spirit of abundance, we actually are formed more and more into who we're supposed to be, who we're called to be, as the receivers of God's grace, as the receivers of God's good gifts who have been freed from the entrapment of possessions and are able to share in a way that is radical and in a way that is reckless with those who are struggling to provide for themselves. And by sharing with them, we extend the grace that we have received to them. We extend to them the offer to join the kingdom of God, to become, like us, an inheritor of the good riches of God. Verse 33, Jesus says that by doing this, we are providing ourselves with money bags that do not grow old. What he's saying is we're dealing with a currency that doesn't exist in physical form in this world. It's no longer money or clothing or food, but we are dealing with a currency of heavenly riches, love and grace and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Our hearts are no longer distracted by worldly treasures, but instead we are focused on our true treasure, which is God himself. God who would make himself known to us. God who would choose because of his overwhelming love for us to dwell within us. And this leads us to, to the second countercultural command that the world struggles to understand. And that's that we are to remain in a constant state of readiness for God's return. Again, think with me, if you will, about how foolish that must sound. Jesus is explicit. We don't know when. He actually says it will come when we don't expect it. So we are to be ready at all times for the thing that we can never expect. It sounds foolish, doesn't it? And yet what Jesus lays out 
as we understand who we are and as we understand who he is, and by extension, who God is, suddenly things begin to make a little bit more sense. You see, if God's presence with us is, in fact, our greatest treasure, then it only makes sense that our greatest possible joy is to be reunited with him, to physically be present with him. This past week, my daughter Grace spent um, time down in Charleston with my parents, and she had a great time. It was a wonderful week for her, but I have to tell you, Grace is one of my treasured possessions. And to have her away for a week was quite difficult. If you have a a special relationship with a child or a parent or a friend, a sibling, you, you might have experienced this yourself. When they are physically distant from you, your heart longs to be reunited with them. Your heart longs to hear about what they're experiencing, what they've done, the ways that they've grown and changed, to share with them about those things that have happened in your life. You can't wait for that moment that you can hug them and speak with them again. Friends, this is the view that we are to have to our greatest treasure, God himself. That is who he is. And this, friends, is the power that the gospel holds. It can reorient our lives so that what doesn't make any sense to the world makes complete sense when we understand who we are and who God is. It allows us to trust completely in him, to yearn for his return, to be constantly vigilant and ready. I want to end with a question, and it's a question that the onlookers ask. The onlookers ask readily, and it's a question that we as insiders need to ask as well. The question is this, how do we know? How do we know that we can trust these commands that Jesus gives to his disciples? How do we know that we can trust that reckless generosity in this world will lead to embarrassing riches in the next? How do we know that our taxing, our burdensome vigilance and waiting for the king's return will be rewarded? Verse 37 gives us the answer. And it's the most challenging element of Jesus' countercultural vision for our lives. Verse 37 says, Truly I say to you, he the servant, or excuse me, he the master will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he the master will come and serve them the servants. The master will come and serve the servants. So how do we know that we can trust this worldview that Jesus puts before us, this countercultural vision of the way we are to live our lives? Well, it's because, it's because he's already done it, right? It's because before we even knew what was possible, when Jesus was on the road to Jerusalem speaking to his disciples and telling them these very things, he was already making his way to the cross before we even knew what was in store for us, that we could inherit the kingdom of God, he was already doing the work to give it to us. Friends, the disciples in this passage, they can only look forward with future hope to what Jesus will do. But we have a different perspective. 
we get to look back. We get to look back at the cross. We get to look back and see with full assurance that Jesus has the power to do the things he says he can do and that we can trust in the things that he calls us to do. I want to conclude with just two applications. And first is a question for believers. What is the posture of your heart? What is the posture of your heart as you await the return of your greatest treasure? Are you willing, are you able to shed, wastefully even, the possessions which have been given over to you, to not be distracted by them as things of little consequence? Are you ready to stay vigilant even though we don't know when? Are you willing to devote every moment of your life to the preparation of the imminent return of the king because he is the person you long to see more than anyone else? And as I began with a warning for nonbelievers, let me begin with a, or let me end with an, an application for them as well. And if that is you, I'm so thankful that you are here. And I ask that you would consider that maybe you don't know all that you think that you know. That maybe there is a way of understanding this world that is different than what you currently have. What if this life is more than just the physical world? What if life is more than food and the body is made for more than clothing? What then? I ask that you would consider the riches of God as we understand them in the life and death and resurrection of his Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.